Hey everyone! What you're about to hear was originally an exclusive episode for our Patreon subscribers. Every once in a while, we will unlock one of these episodes to give you a taste of the content we're doing for patrons. If you like this one, go to patreon.com slash podsidepicnic and subscribe. That's patreon.com slash podsidepicnic. Thanks! Hey everyone, welcome back to Podside Picnic. It is getting close to being the tail end of Dune Month. We have wandered across the desert and we're emerging into um, uh, whatever the lush, you know, secret paradise of Arrakis is. I won't torture this metaphor anymore, but <laughs> I'm back here. I'm back here with Pete. Uh, you're familiar with him. And you may also be familiar with our special guest today, who is an editor at Jewish Currents, which is a left-wing Jewish publication. He's also a journalist in other capacities, contributing to places such as The Nation and Foreign Policy. And he's a pretty big, uh, quite a big profile on Twitter. That is my buddy, David Cleon. Thanks for joining us, man. Thanks so much for having me. I'm uh, so excited to talk about Dune. I don't get nearly enough opportunities. That's what we want to hear. And I think to frame this for everyone, we're talking Dune generally, as we have been throughout the month of August. But in particular, something that you talked about with me was uh, this thing, the Dune Encyclopedia, uh, which I guess Pete knows a little bit about. Um, but before we launch into that, I want to ask you, like, when did you first read Dune and kind of what has it meant to you over time? So I first read Dune in sixth grade, I think. And to be honest, I, I wasn't totally uh, into it then. I was a little overwhelmed and bewildered by the the richness of the universe. And um, I, I felt like I needed to give it another shot. And I think it was in eighth grade when I read it and got completely obsessed and then was for the next couple of years. And I, I think I last reread it. I probably read the original book like half a dozen times, something like that. The last was a few years ago. I ended up... Um, doing a chat uh with with my friends um that that like a written chat that ended up on the toast um i'm not sure if that's currently online or not i, I don't know what they've done with their archives r.i.p the toast we miss yeah, it <laughs> don't we all but um but uh yeah i mean my peak fandom in like high school i think i read uh all of the six frank herbert books um I read the first prequel, which I do, um, which is relevant to our story about the Dune Encyclopedia. I hated it. I thought it was crap. Um, I'm old enough. I'm, I'm 35. That uh, the time when I was most into Dune, like probably 98, 99, something around then, there were like Usenet message boards that I was in. There was Alt Fan Dune, where there were all these, you know, people with. Uh, fake names who who like really drilled down into it that was like the internet culture we all we all mourn now um and uh and and the consensus among the the true dune diehards was that the prequels were an abomination uh so i i never got past the first one although i've kind of noticed how many there've been since but um it they seem to be a good grift yeah they are a good grift and i have um I have a kind of theory about them that I think makes a natural transition. Although, let me just to finish your, your question, what has it meant for me? Um, I, I think for a long, you know, I was a huge Star Wars fan. You'll be shocked to hear. I went through a period of being a Trekkie um, around the same time as all this. I was into a few other sci-fi universes. But I think Dune was the the sci-fi or fantasy universe that I got most kind of invested in and that felt a little bit special like it's a very it there is a huge dune fandom but I, I think maybe it was Jacob Bacharach wrote something about this last year uh that it's always been a little bit underground it's always been a little bit cultish um I can feel that changing now in the way like left twitter talks about it but uh but but it still feels 
less like a universal reference point than Star Wars, for instance. Um, and like, you know, the, the, when you meet a, a, a Dune diehard, you know that uh, you're operating out of a certain context and a certain frame of reference that, that the average person isn't. And the fullness and richness of that universe, the, you know, the religion is worked out in detail, the tens of thousands of years of history, the weird languages and, and cultural blending, like it, it, um, it's not cute. Uh, and it's not totally accessible as I guess I found when I tried to crack it the first time. And, um, and I think that makes it ultimately very rewarding. Uh, and, and so that's what it's meant for me. Also, the David Lynch movie is insane in a good way. And I love it. <laughs> yeah. So one of the things that we wanted to talk about here today, and I'm, I'm, I'm probably going it to it too fast. Yeah, I hope you'll forgive me. I'm excited. Uh, is, yeah, you, you have interest and knowledge about the Dune Encyclopedia that came out. And that really perked my ears up because I remember getting a paperback copy when I was like 14 or 15 and like reading that thing to pieces, trying to design my own role-playing game around the universe, which was a disaster. It was just a mess. But uh, the the point is, like, I, I haven't, because it's been so long out of print, I haven't talked to anybody that was even really aware it existed. So can we start with what your connection is to that book? So I think I also got my paperback copy around 14 or 15. And just to give you an idea, on my bookshelves right now in my apartment in Brooklyn, I have this tiny little section where I have uh, an old paperback copy of Dune, just the first book. I have a Russian translation from when <laughs> I was studying Russian at Middlebury years ago. Um, I have the Dune Encyclopedia. I have a VHS of the David Lynch movie, even though I don't have a VHS player. Um, nice. But I like the cover. And I have one pack of the Dune customizable card game, which existed. Um, I believe it's a House Corino deck because there were like six different decks for, for the different factions. And, uh, <laughs> and that's it. And I don't have any of the other books. So I have this like tiny little shrine to Dune. But the Dune Encyclopedia is a prized possession, precisely because it's out of print, and also because I think it's one of the most incredible things ever published. Um, and uh, the story of why it's out of print, which relates directly to the prequels, is really sad. So let me... Let me set the stage and, and give unfamiliar uh, listeners an idea of what the Dune Encyclopedia is. The Dune Encyclopedia uh, is a, a huge paperback volume of around 500 pages that that came out, uh, and like big pages, it's bigger than a, a normal paperback book, um, that came out uh, in, I think, 1983. Uh, and it was the collective project of a bunch of academics uh, the person who compiled it is named Dr. Willis E. McNelly, and I don't know much about him. I, I think a lot of these people were in Berkeley, but I'm not sure about that. Um, but there's a, there's a list of their real names at the very end of the book, and it, it's got to be a couple, couple dozen people who contributed to this thing. Um, and uh, the cover says it is the complete authorized guide and companion to Frank Herbert's masterpiece of the imagination, the Dune Encyclopedia. And the fonts and art style are um, familiar to people who've seen copies of Dune of a certain vintage. So authorized is a, is a good word there. And right inside, you'll see um, a letter from Frank Herbert dated November 1983. Uh, in which he, he praises the book. He seems to love it. Uh, and he says, um, as the first Dune fan, I give this encyclopedia my delighted approval, although I hold my own counsel on some of the issues still to be explored as the chronicles unfold. Now, I'll get into what the book actually comprises in a sec, but I just want to flash forward to, you know, Frank Herbert, at this point, he had written the first four Dune books through God Emperor. He wrote two more in the years following this encyclopedia. Um, and then he died, uh, even though the sixth book ends on a very weird cliffhanger. And years later, in what was it, the late 90s, um, his son, Brian Herbert, and a hack sci-fi writer 
named Kevin J. Anderson, who was probably best known for some Star Wars expanded universe books that weren't good, uh, teamed up and, and claimed that they had this trove of Frank Herbert's notes on what the, the seventh and final Dune book was going to be, but also on like prequels he was allegedly going to write. And they've never published these notes, to my knowledge. They've never, uh, you know, proven that they exist, really. But they have churned out just like a ton of prequels and sequels. And um, and it's all very hacky. And, you know, you can go to any sci-fi section of any bookstore anywhere in the country and see a ton of this next to Dune. And when they started this project of like elaborately fleshing out the Dune universe, the Dune Encyclopedia was a problem for them because it had a lot of background material that um, that these academics and fans had come up with that went way beyond the scope of the book. And so they got McNelly, who's now dead, to sign a letter basically disavowing the Dune Encyclopedia, calling it fanfic, saying it was not canonical, and, um, and it's been out of print. Uh, and I guess it always will be. Um, and it's infuriating because the Dune Encyclopedia is so richly imagined and brilliant and just full of great stuff and well-written and fascinating and like really gets at what made Dune great. And then all of these prequels and sequels, as best as I can tell, are, are bullshit. Uh, and yet, so that the Herbert estate can make money, I'm also skeptical that Brian Herbert has had much to do with actually writing these books. It seems to me like uh, Kevin J. Anderson is, is doing the actual work there, such as it is. Uh, but so that those books can exist and make those two money, uh, this gem uh, is is a rarity. Uh, and I'm very lucky that uh, that I that I have a copy, um, although I do think the PDF exists online. Uh, I checked that at some point so people can try to track that down. But anyway, that's what the Dune Encyclopedia is in a publishing context. Um, I, I should ask you guys if, if, if you have any details or corrections or anything to add to that but then i want to get into what what's actually in the book uh i'd say the the only thing i would want to add to that was in about 2000 uh the the author of the dune encyclopedia made a public plea that i found hilarious um he was like well the the um the the estate of frank herbert has said that we should not not publish this uh, it's off the table. So I would strongly encourage everyone out there to not put out free copies of this document <laughs> all over the Internet. Oh, my gosh. That's so cool. <laughs> well, you know, that's actually a good segue because that's very Riley funny. And so is a lot of the Dune Encyclopedia. Uh, it's it's really quite brilliant. Um, I mean, I guess. It's properly categorized as a work of fan fiction, but um, I want to give a sense for for anyone who's never seen this thing, and I and and I strongly encourage people to find uh, copies on the internet and read the hell out of it. Um, but uh, and it being an encyclopedia divided up into alphabetical sections, you can kind of read it in whatever order you feel like. Um, but uh, but the premise of the book, there's an introduction. Uh, it's, it's all in universe, um, including, including the introduction other than the Frank Herbert letter at the beginning and the like list of real contributor names at the very end, the entire book is, is in universe, including like, um, the, the footnotes to each of the articles. Um, so the premise, and it's been such a long time since I've read the novels that aren't Dune, but. As I dimly remember, God Emperor Leto II had his like golden plan for the starvation and the scattering and and the like notes at the beginning of each chapter of God Emperor were written like like a thousand years after the book or something like that in universe. And they're like um there's been like this this trove of of um Leto II's like information that's been dug up by archaeologists and they're and, and and they're sort of like explaining him in hindsight. Is that is that right? Am I getting that right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so to so my the, memory anyway. <laughs> yeah. So the Dune Encyclopedia purports to be from that horde, the Rackus horde, it's called, because they 
renamed Arrakis as just Rackus. Um, and all of the articles in the Dune Encyclopedia uh, were, are, are uh, supposedly like written by scholars maybe a thousand years after Leto II um, died, uh, written by like academics and scholars in various disciplines, working off all of this stuff that's been dug up and trying to reconstruct the past as described in the first four Dune novels, although also the like things that happened before those novels in universe. So everything's in universe and everything is written in various scholarly voices. So like there are articles about the chemical composition of, of the spice melange, which like are written as, as if by like an academic chemic, uh, chemist, sorry. Um, there are articles that are written by historians that seem like real articles written by historians. Uh, there are like, um, like real linguists wrote about the various languages in universe as, as a linguist would. Um, there's poetry like, and, and it's just all really clever. And, um, and, and, and actually one of the most brilliant things from, cause my academic discipline was history. So from a historian's perspective is there are several different articles about Paul Mwadib. There's not just one. Um, and they like, there's one, which is basically a straightforward um, account of Paul's life as it's presented in, in the first three books. Um, but then there's another one which is written by a revisionist historian who is putting forward the argument that Paul's le- that Paul was not really an Atreides or that Muad'Dib was not really Paul Atreides, that he must have come from the Fremen in the desert and constructed a false um, identity as Paul Atreides to sort of legitimate his claim to the throne. Uh, and it like goes through the evidence to prove that this is true. Now, I'm sure the author of this doesn't believe this is true. I'm sure they, you know, read the Dune books and took them at face value. But they're like going to the imaginative work of of like, you know, what what would a bullshit revisionist historian thousands of years <laughs> later do to like construct this and like actually writing that article in, in completely in character. And I mean, I'm I just. I was like 14. I hadn't been to college yet. I hadn't been to grad school, but like I already got why this was awesome. And uh, like the idea that 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 can't exist in print is is so annoying to me. Well, in, in addition to like uh, the 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 franchise books being written later being terrible. What frustrates me about this is it would be so easy to fit this into the universe because it's it's the very definition of an uh, of a of, of a fallible narrator. I right. mean I I mean you could just say well these people thought this and they were wrong. Let's move on. Like I I just don't understand why they made this choice. Yeah, no. I think it's because they um are cowardly and, um, <laughs> and, and I think they lack, um, self-esteem. I think they know their hacks and they're afraid of the unflattering comparison. Uh, so even though this had, I mean, we know that Frank Herbert blessed this. We actually have no idea that he blessed the prequels and sequels. We just have his son's word for it. Um, but uh, th- there's a line in the introduction, which I must stress was written in character by the ostensible editor of this book, whose name is uh, Hadi Benotto, um, where he says, um, we must also consider something of the eccentricities of Lord Leto, who was solely responsible for accumulating, assembling, and secreting what is now known as the Rackus Horde. If Leto was interested in some topic, the material was saved. If he was not, its absence in the Rackus digs is obvious. Furthermore, if he was amused by some scrap of information, he preserved it, even though many contemporary scholars feel the information may well have been false or misleading in the first place. So, like, they were clever enough to anticipate that Frank Herbert himself, as he says in in his authorized uh, note at the beginning, uh, you know, might disagree with some of this or might take it in a different direction. I mean, they thought of exactly what you just said. They thought of everything. And like, again, I stress, there are footnotes to like fictional works of scholarship by fictional scholars at the end of, of every article. Also, also in that introduction, 
they thank a bunch of people with strange names. And two of the people they thank, they say, poet Rebeth Vrieb and her husband Rebeth Farnak were instrumental in helping sort out some of the voluminous material found in the hoard, and both uh, gave unstintingly of their time and advice. Now, those are rough anagrams for uh, Herbert Beverly and Herbert Frank, the uh, the the uh, author and his wife. So, like the the, the jokes are everywhere, and um, like you know, it's such a because I think they they really got what makes Dune great, which is the world building, and also the fact that every Dune book I think um, is written by or every Dune book's chapters are introduced with documents written ostensibly after the book itself by like historians or scholars with different perspectives on, on the events you're reading. Right. So like, um, you know, in, in the original book, everything is from something by the princess Irulan, uh, who marries Paul, but is, is not his true love. Um, but whose marriage to him legitimates the throne. And if you're reading the original Dune carefully, you understand that, you know, it looks like you're reading a traditional hero's narrative, but you're also constantly being told in these, in these chapter headings of the legendary Muad'Dib, uh, you know, who conquers the universe and, and with his jihad and it's all propaganda. Um, and it's supposed to make you think about like, is this guy really a hero? Should we really be rooting for him? Which, you know, then the, the sequels uh, by Frank Herbert, the immediate sequels make clear that, you know, he's comparable to Hitler in a lot of ways. Uh, they, they make that comparison explicit in Dune Messiah, I think. Um, and, um, and, and so like central to the experience of reading Dune is that you're, you know, you're in a, a, a fully imagined universe with its own history and people believe ideologies and historical narratives that, that influence how they interpret events. And the entirety of the Dune Encyclopedia plays directly into that spirit. I, I have a question that I think it may be for both of you. That, that might be Connor's call, whether he wants to speak to this too. Um, I, um, I, yeah, I, I don't know how much you've listened to what we do, David, but sort Not of. Not at all, the, but I look okay. forward to it. Well, fair enough. Yeah. Well, the, the <laughs> shtick is that um, I have a crushingly deep knowledge of science fiction and nothing else. <laughs> and Connor is is our, our literary guy. And so there's something I see in science fiction and fantasy again and again. And I don't really know whether it exists in the larger world. So I, let me describe it. And maybe you guys will have examples or be like, no, that's weird and disgusting. And that is when a well-known enough author dies. So Frank Herbert or Roger Zelazny or Robert Jordan, who did those, those Wheel of Time books, almost immediately afterwards, the family gets together and shops around for an author to franchise out the works and add another 15 or 20. And it's gotten to the point where it is like when I was growing up, this wasn't true, but it's absolutely true now. And like, is that just the genre verse I'm in? Well, I, I think there are examples of that. It, well, I mean, I think the most famous one that comes to mind, maybe Connor's thinking of it, too, in, in just general literary fiction is um, is what's happened with. Uh, and technically, she's not dead, but with uh, To Kill a Mockingbird, where um, like as I understand it, I haven't read this sequel, but like the sequel to To Kill a Mockingbird that came out a few years ago is like ostensibly by Harper Lee. But but a lot of people think she was, you know, had dementia or something and was basically conned into signing off on on something that I don't know. There's a lot of theories about it. Yeah, I, I think To Kill a Mockingbird, though, is kind of a unicorn in general, just because there are so few examples of someone writing a highly canonical novel very early in their career and producing essentially nothing else. So, I mean, you're totally right, David. That is, that is a useful comparison. I would say that is quite rare in literary writing because there's, because I think the, the key difference here is that sort of the granular down to almost a molecular level of how the writing functions for these really canonic, you know, sort of living canonical literary writers 
uh, is taken to be like they essentially have magical powers that only they can produce <laughs> their right. voice, their aesthetic. Only they can be them. Whereas the di- the key difference is in genre, no one and I would I don't think that any of us we all like Frank Herbert would say that Frank Herbert's like voice is sort of inimitably you know uh, valuable in and of itself. But what what is valued at least I think culturally is the world building, right? The the, the sheer act of imagination. And there's a thought that someone else can reproduce that. Oh, that's true or not. And I think in a lot of cases, fans would argue that it's not true. And we're certainly here arguing that it's not true for the case of Frank Herbert. But I do think there's that what is valued in genre writers that you can see the gulf between what's valued for them and what's valued among literary writers. Do you think that's a fair statement, David? Yeah, I I definitely do. Although, um, although I, well, I haven't read his non Dune output. I hear it's bad, but, um, but I, I, it's bad, but I but we I've argued always, that it's bad on the show. So <laughs> well, I, I'm looking forward to that one. But I, I, um, I've never thought Frank Herbert is a bad writer. Exactly. I mean, it's mixed. There's some really weird stuff in, especially the later Dune books. Um, and he clearly had some weird sexual hangups and a from his Catholic upbringing, which there is an aside I want to bring up at some point about that. But, um, but he. Uh, there is definitely a voice to, to Dune. Um, I mean, it's kind of like pompous and I guess you see versions of it in a lot of other fantasy writing, especially, but, um, but I do feel like there was a, a kind of a sterility and a, a, like the, of the, um, the prequel I read. I mean, I thought that like, um, it felt a lot flatter and more like just kind of like standard genre fiction. Uh, whereas, I did always feel like there was something not just about the world building, but something like deep and immersive, but maybe that was just my middle about the original Dune, but maybe that was just my middle school brain functioning. No, I think you're correct about that. I I guess my point is just that like correctly or not. And I think this is interesting to unpack. We think of Faulkner as having this magic touch in his prose that I don't think anyone's going to impute to Frank Herbert. Right. No, that's definitely true. That's definitely true. I will also say if, if, Brian Herbert and Kevin J. Anderson wanted to put out like 20 or infinity novels set in the Dune universe, uh, you know, after he died, I, I, in and of itself, even if they're kind of hacky, I don't, I don't object to the existence of such a thing as like a cash cow for them. Uh, and for people who just want to play in this universe, I get that. What offends me is their unsubstantiated claim that this comes from his notes, that they're writing like exactly what he would have written. Um, that is just so clearly not true. Um, and it's and like really, weekend at Frank Herbert's. They're they're dragging <laughs> his body around. Yeah, it's really Basically, gross. Yeah. It's really gross and offensive. And then it also uh, bothers me that this this really wonderful book isn't allowed to exist in the world. Uh, you know, because it threatens their project. Because I, I think when I sort of joked about their insecurity, but I really mean it. I think they they need fans to believe that this is what Frank Herbert would have done to, you know, justify it and sell it to as many people as possible. And the Dune Encyclopedia is a challenge to that, even though if they were a little more um, like good sports about it, I don't think it would have to be. But um, the one thing the Dune Encyclopedia does at the beginning, which um, which I think probably they found threatening is it has a chronology of some important events in human history is what they call it. And it goes from, it's just a simple uh, timeline and it goes from 19,000 before guild to um, 15,540 after, after guild. Um, and, and if you know, you know, you're doing, you know that the original book takes place in 10,191 after guild. Um, so, you know, there's a huge prehistory. Uh, I mean, the, the Dune universe doesn't take place 10,000 years in the future. It takes place 10,000 years after the Butlerian Jihad and, uh, and, and the consolidation of, of the ruling system we're introduced to with, with the, the great houses and stuff. So they wrote this before Guild chronology that starts 19,000 years before that, uh, and, and, um, and the first, like, maybe half dozen incidents in it are from real human history, but as it would be imagined. Um, 
you know, by people tens of thousands of years later in their terms. So if I, if I may just kind of read through this, I won't give oh, dates. Absolutely. Please do. But here are, here are the first few items in their before guild timeline and the, the, the dates, you know, 19,000, 16,500, whatever, roughly correspond to real history. So the first one is a period they describe as early civilizations on Terra. Then they say Alexander, spelled in a kind of transliterated Russian spelling, creates first empire. The next item is Roman Empire arises and conquers the known world, except for China, which resists until 14,400. So this is like, <laughs> so this is like, you can kind of imagine if you look at the timeline, they're saying, you know, that the Roman Empire is Western civilization, which eventually conquered China in roughly the 19th century. But, you know, the, the next item is imperial seat moved to Byzantium in retreat before provincial rebellions and minor jihads, uh, you know, minor jihads being the kind of Islamicized, Fremenized version of this universe's understanding of what were actually pre-Islamic barbarian invasions. Then they have something called the Great Struggle, the century without an emperor. Then discoveries in America allow Madrid to attain the status of the imperial seat. So like whoever's compiling this encyclopedia has like retroactively imagined that there was always an emperor in human history. And it like passed to, to Madrid. Then Battle of Engla Channel, seat of empire moved from Madrid to London. Now, if you know your European history, you know that like it's definitely not as simple as like under Elizabeth, like England surpassed Spain as as the great power. But from like tens of thousands of years hindsight, maybe you could think that. Then they have the golden age of invention, development of radio, television, atomics, rocketry, genetics, and the computer over a 300-year period. Because 300 years is nothing, right? It's a, it's a blink of an eye to them. Uh, and then they have in 14,255 um, before Guild, first atomics demonstrated in an intra-provincial war, seat of empire moved to Washington. Um, so there's your World War II. And the next thing that happens is the solar system is colonized. And from that, it's all, it's all you know, sci-fi. But I just love this. I love this notion that you could compress like all of known human history through the 20th century into a couple extremely misleading bullet points <laughs> as they would be as they would be understood by this like feudal imperial order that rules the entire universe. And where like the big events are like the movement of the supposed imperial capital plus like atomics. Right. Uh, History that's also currently understood by these this new generation of reactionary nationalist scholars. But oh, yeah, no, it's, it's very white nationalist, <laughs> although I don't think they intend it that way. I just think they understand that's how the Dune universe would see it. By the way, I mean, I, one other thing that Dune has meant to me and this so gets to that is, um, you know, you were saying what one of you is all about sci fi and fantasy and one of you is all about literature. I mean, I would say I'm all about history and politics. And um, Dune may have, my Dune obsession may have been my transition from mostly reading sci-fi in middle school to mostly reading history and nonfiction ever since. Uh, I think it, it got me thinking like a historian. Um, And uh, I I think it's very good at that. Yeah, well, there you go. I was going to ask you that question, but you have answered it. I was going to (laughs) ask if Dune, if Dune turned you into what you are now and it seems clear that it had a big role to play at least. Yeah. Well, I mean, it gets you thinking about like, where does power really lie? Like that's what Dune is really concerned with. Right. And there's that incredible final chapter of, of the first book where Paul having, you know, defeated every, every obstacle basically explains to all the power brokers of the known universe in this incredibly like, you know, uh, domineering tone uh, how he's got everything locked up. He's got this fanatic army behind him. He's got the prescience and the ability to go places the Bene Gesserit can't go. Um, he's got sandworms and he's got total control of the spice, which you know means total control of navigation throughout the universe. And he's just kind of laying out to everyone 
how how all of the levers of power now belong to him. And he's dictating terms and saying, this is this is how we're going to do things from now on. And, you know, I've been listening to like, um, I think our mutual uh, friend or acquaintance, Trollburn's Age of Napoleon podcast. Um, oh, yes. And and it's like not not to do an exact one to one analogy, but like you can see, uh, you know, in sort of the consolidation of Napoleon's power, like with, with, I, I just caught up. So I've gotten to the point where he becomes first consul and, and basically redesigns the Republic to, you know, be entirely in the service of, of himself and his war machine. And, um, and, 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 you know, you, this is like a major theme in history. How is power wielded? How is it consolidated? What is the ruling class? You know, how do dictators emerge? And Herbert was thinking about this stuff all along. Um, and it was central to his vision. Um, and, uh, yeah, I think Dune really got me thinking in those terms. It's a lot more interesting than good versus evil. Yeah, I, so I want to backtrack a little bit. You mentioned you had a thesis about Frank Herbert, speaking in, in terms of, uh, speaking of power and institutions, you had a thesis about Frank Herbert and Catholicism. Oh, yes. Well, um, I once, I think I just browsed it in a bookstore, but Brian Herbert's son has a memoir uh, that obviously is a lot about just being Frank Herbert's son. And I was browsing through it in a store and I discovered something that is extremely telling. Um, and this was years ago, so uh, apologies if I, if I get it slightly wrong. But I think this is basically right. Brian Herbert had a brother. Um, and his brother, as he puts it, and I want to emphasize this is his term, not mine, but it stuck with me. Brian Herbert says his brother at some point had become a homosexual. Uh, that's how he phrases it. Um, and, uh, and was disowned by Frank Herbert. And Brian, who obviously has massively cashed in on his father's legacy, uh, seems to observe this as kind of a tragedy akin to, like, you know, my brother developed a meth addiction or, or something. Uh, you know, like, it, it sucks, and he became estranged from the family. Um, but, and he mentions that, like, his father wrote about, you know, how homosexuality, like, destroyed the Roman Empire or whatever. Now, anyone with a cursory familiarity with Dune or, um, or, or the, the movie version, for that matter, knows that, you know, Frank Herbert wrote Baron Harkonnen, the, the most cartoonish villain in, in the book, um, as, a, as a gay pedophile, um, in addition to being hideous and obese and covered in boils or whatever. Um, actually, are the Boyles in the book or are they just in the Frank Herbert, uh, the David Lynch? I think that's a Lynch invention, actually, but okay. yeah. Well, I mean, fair enough, but they, they fit the image of this just hideously fat, greedy, creepy guy who, who preys on little slave boys and on his uh, nephew. Um, and, uh, I mean, it's very clear from that depiction that Frank Herbert, you know, was deeply homophobic to his core, and that is substantiated by by his son's account that uh and um i know that frank herbert was raised by i think jesuit nuns anyone who <laughs> I has was like say wolves say wolves <laughs> yeah any anyone who has read the first chapter of dune just the which is honestly i think one of the great first chapters in at least genre literature um but anyone who has read that first chapter could could probably guess that this guy was raised by Jesuit. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah, and, and of course, yeah. Je Jesuit sounds a lot like Jesuit, although Bene Jesuit has a, a kind of Latin meaning of sorts, I guess. But um, yeah, I mean, the, the sisterhood, they're, they're clearly strict nuns who psychologically and physically torture young boys while turning them into scholars and geniuses. And that... Um, I mean, that's just a really obvious parallel in the books. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I think what, what I just described is barely a theory. I think it's I think it's all kind of there on face value. Yeah, I mean, now that you mention it, I, I hadn't necessarily noticed it in those terms, but you're right. It Definitely, <laughs> the story bears the hallmarks of someone who went to Catholic school and has this immense both fear and a kind of admiration and deference for nuns. And I've met a lot of Catholics, especially older Catholics like that. So. Oh, yeah. No, I mean, I, I'm, I'm certainly not Catholic myself, but I've, but I've, I've met quite a few and I've heard stories. And, um, uh, the, um, the later books, 
especially I would say the last, well, the last two books are like this intergalactic war between the Bene Gesserit and the um, honored Matres who are a, a, a sisterhood of, of um, whores as the Bene Gesserit call them who like seduce men and control them. So clearly whoever wrote that had some, had some issues around sex and there's a lot of weird issues around. <laughs> there's a lot of weird issues around sex in, in God Emperor of Dune too. A lot of, I mean, a lot of God Emperor yeah. is just Leto the second kind of um, spitballing and philosophizing and um, making really weird observations about history and about sex uh, that I assume were Frank Herbert's own thoughts. Um, and I mean, uh, dude was messed up. Fortunately, there's, other than the homophobic portrayal of the Baron, I wouldn't say there's too much of this in the first book. Yeah, I think what's interesting, like, about Herbert for me in this way is we can say that when Dune, the first Dune came out, like, the dude was, as has been said many times in our pod, he was sort of a cutting-edge early environmentalist. It's probably the most forward-facing thing about him that's at an intellectual level has aged best. Um, but I think when you consider these aspects of him, you have to say, like, this dude was not a hippie. Oh, right. No. Like, despite although, living although up clearly, the, yeah. the, clearly the drug culture of the 60s influenced him, though. I yeah, mean, he at least yes. was thinking about it for sure. I mean, it's, it's just the, interesting to Dune. You know, Dune is not just um, interesting as like history or as having its kind of big message. Another thing I found fascinating about it was that it, it was doing so many different things, but they held together like you could read it and be like, oh, this is a book about psychedelic drugs and you wouldn't be wrong. Or you could say this is a book about like a millennia old breeding program by witches. Or you could say it's a book about um, ecology and the transformation of a desert planet. Uh, or you could say it's about great feudal houses going to war. And it, it really is about all of those things. Um, it's, uh, it's very textured in that way. The, the sequel's less so, I find. They're a little more monodirectional not to say they're bad but like um honestly for for the casual reader i I feel like everybody should read the first book dune and and then only the obsessive should should go any further than that but yeah i i mean i think that talking about the layering of dune and how many sort of how you can peel away layer after layer and still have <laughs> many layers to go of mystery sort of orbiting this this untouchable core is kind of the the metaphor that I keep keep using uh cuz you're right there's just something deeply like both to be analyzed but also deeply mysterious about what makes this core first text work so well and it sounds like the tie back in what you were saying the dune encyclopedia is probably the best attempt ever made to sort of process and understand how that really operates oh by far by far i mean the you know i mean they they go deep into basically every concept that herbert made up sometimes in passing uh and they and by writing it in universe i mean i i guess i've said this a few times but they they really capture something of the spirit of the books but there's also just so many winking in jokes everywhere um also one thing um Connor, you you sent me a message, a, a question, sort of a prompt before this, where uh, you you asked what I think about the Villeneuve um, movie and whether I think this is filmable. Yeah. Um, my answer to that is first, uh, everything I've heard about the casting and stuff sounds incredible, uh, so I'm definitely looking forward. Second, I don't really think you can ruin the Dune franchise at this point. It, it, it's, <laughs> like, I, I, I feel this way kind of how I feel about Star Wars. I mean, like after after uh, the Phantom Menace, like, you know, whatever, just keep making Star Wars stuff. Some of it will be good. Some of it won't. But there's nothing like pure to be ruined at this point. Uh, you know, you're you're riffing on a core original legend we all love uh, with varying degrees of success. So. You know, I hope the Villeneuve movie is great. Uh, if it's if it's not, then um, you know I'll still love Dune and I'll still love the Dune Encyclopedia. But I I think there's reason to think it might be. And the Lynch movie, which has many flaws, um, the biggest being the concept of the weirding module, which is a like elaborate misreading of several aspects of of the book uh, to create something really strange. That makes no sense, but um, but I think he got a lot of things right too, and I also just think it's like kind of awesome 
in in its weird 80s way. Uh, so, you know, I, I welcome another interpretation. But I don't think Dune is unfilmable, uh, partly because it has been filmed twice. So there was that, like, sci-fi series, too. Um, partly because I think it's very cinematic. Uh, but partly because I think something has really changed in the way we consume popular culture uh, since those adaptations, uh, which is prestige drama. And um, I'm thinking of many examples, but above all Game of Thrones, which I just rewatched in its entirety and, and it, and it holds up until the messy last season. <laughs> until it doesn't. But, yeah. Yeah. And still, and still <laughs> they start cutting until they start cutting corners. Um, but if I, but, but what Game of Thrones demonstrate to me, and I, I actually hadn't read the books, although I'm, I'm planning to, um, but what it demonstrated to me is that you can have a massively successful epic TV property um, in a universe that I would say is way, way, way more elaborately drawn than Dune. And, um, you know, the, the work that George R.R. R. Martin has done to flesh out that universe is, is just unbelievable. I mean, it's, it's one of the most ambitious such projects I'm aware of. And, um, and, and there's just a massive fandom for it, way bigger than Dune's, um, which tells me, why not? Why not do that for Dune? I think you could be similarly successful. Um, well, they are they are going to do an HBO miniseries, at least, I think, based. It's not the core story, but I think it's like based on the Bene Gesserit. Yeah, I mean, um, there's a lot of material to work with. And, and uh, I think, um, you know, geek. It's been observed many times that geek culture, which when I was in middle school, genuinely made you a nerd and an outcast. I mean, you could enjoy it, but if it was like your thing, then you were, you know, kind of socially poisonous and hung out with the other nerds. Uh, and um, I have a little bit of a chip on my shoulder toward younger millennials for whom I think that's just not true at all. I think um, everybody thinks they're a geek now. And like, oh, yeah. please come back on the show, man. I love hearing this. Yeah, I mean, people, people who are like, you know, who, who are objectively like popular kids or hipsters or whatever, like, uh, you know, have like detailed knowledge of the Marvel Universe or Star Wars or Star Trek or Game of Thrones. Now it's it's ridiculous. Like we, we did not have this in the late 90s at all. Uh, Pete was growing um, up in the in the eighties, so even worse. Oh God, I can imagine. <laughs> um, and um, I mean, it's uh, ultimately I'm grateful for it because it's a lot more people to talk about this stuff with, and because you know you wouldn't have like the Game of Thrones series without it. Incidentally, I will say um, the my understanding is that for all the issues with the last two seasons of Game of Thrones, and they are noticeably worse, worse written. Um, the core plot points are ones that George R. R. Martin gave to the showrunners. Um, and so just going to briefly say spoiler alert for anyone who hasn't watched the end of Game of Thrones. I assume you guys have. Yeah. Yes. OK, so um, I think that Game of Thrones actually uh, broadly follows the arc of, of Dune. Uh or maybe do the first three Dune books. Uh, obviously, there's a lot more twists and turns and aspects that aren't the same. But basically, you have the um, the head of a great family who is betrayed by the other great families and exiled to a desert wilderness. It's a woman in this case, but bear with me, who becomes the kind of like white savior type to the, the desert savages, uh, which is not how I see it for the record, but it's clearly a racist trope within both of these universes um, and rallies them as their Messiah and savior and takes dragons in one case, sandworms in another and, you know, reconquers the European style feudal order they were exiled from uh, claiming a kind of holy and liberatory mission, uh, but gets carried away, kills huge numbers of people and uh, is ultimately toppled because they were a, a murderous false messiah and um, genocidal dictator in the end. Uh, and it's 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 exactly the same arc with exactly the same cautionary tale about following liberators. Um, that's a 
That's a very good point. I hadn't thought about the level of detail. That's a really, that's a good reading. Yeah. You know, it that, all lines the, up. The, I honestly, I think this second was my peak moment in Doom Month. That That is, I love that comparison so much. Well, thank you. I'm, honestly, uh, I, I get the sense that we could keep doing this kind of forever, but I, I, um, you're going to have to come back on the show at some point, David. And, I would uh, love that. But... For, I, we would love to have you. And I think for now, Pete, did you want to recommend a book? Ah, thank you for remembering. Yes, yes. So, uh, David, I I've, I was aware of you on Twitter, uh, but I couldn't get a lot about your reading habits. So I, I just sort of took a blind stab. Could I recommend a book to you? Sure. Uh, okay. I will tell you just in my reading habits, I overwhelmingly read nonfiction and mostly histories. Um, and... Uh, I uh, don't read as much fiction as I'd like. It's been years since I've read sci-fi, which uh, I should fix. And, and you know, or like it, you were, I, I, I will not be checking out by promise. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the, the book I thought you might like is called The Broken Land by Ian MacDonald. Uh, Ian MacDonald uh, grew up in Northern Ireland and the book is placed in the future about a refugee um, trying to get from like where her village was destroyed to like the city where the remainder of her family is. But it very much ties into his experiences during the time of troubles. Huh. And it's, it's, it, it's, it's a book that really resonated with me and it, it was something that I, th- I thought you might like. That sounds great. I, uh, I, I think I've maybe heard of it, but I don't know anything about it. And that sounds totally fascinating. So thank you for that. Absolutely. Cool. And, you know, I, man, there's so there's so many things I want to ask David about, but I think we should probably go ahead and call it. Sorry for the cliffhanger, everyone that's listening. But um, look, it's it's like the end of Chapter House Dune. It's like we're suddenly, <laughs> suddenly Mar- Marty, Marty and Daniel show up and have this baffling conversation. And that's that. That's it. Yeah. yeah. Sorry. We're going to now I'm going to go off and die like Frank Herbert and my <laughs> my heirs will uh, fill in the blanks of this podcast. But thank you so much, David. This has been great, man. Absolutely. I'd love to do this again about any number of things. Awesome. Wonderful. Well, we're, we're definitely going to do that. Uh, thank you, everyone. <laughs> this has been one of our most erudite episodes. Gosh, we're getting so deep into Dune. All right. Thanks, everyone. <laughs> Bye, guys. Thanks a lot. Bye bye.